Having developed the internet and connected the world to our fingertips, we tend to think of ourselves as enlightened beings very different than our medieval or ancient counterparts, with very separate problems. But are modern problems really just modern problems, or are they just prevailing issues repackaged for our modern sensibilities? And if so, how can classics help us address these, quote, modern problems? And why are these issues so superficially discussed throughout the culture and Western church? What can we do to deepen these conversations? Dr. Spencer Clavin and I tackle these and other questions in this first episode of 2023, and the first episode of Season 4 of Aiming for the Moon. Dr. Spencer Clavin is an associate editor at the Claremont Review Books and a podcaster on the Great Works of the West. You can check out his book, How to Save the West, which is available to pre-order now, and his podcast, Young Heretics, through the links below. And with that, I am Taylor Bledsoe, and this is the Aiming for the Moon podcast, where I interview interesting people from a teenage perspective. Okay, and with that, if you like what you hear today, please rate the podcast and subscribe. You can follow us at Aiming for Moon on Instagram, Twitter, and now Facebook. And you can check out our website, aimingforthemoon.com, for links to our merchandise, Lessons from Interesting People newsletter, and other episodes and bios of our guests. All right, I think you guys are really going to enjoy this episode, so sit back, relax, and listen in. Enjoy! Well, welcome Dr. Clavin to Aiming for the Moon. Thank you so much for coming on! Thanks so much, Taylor, for for having me. You're already so much more prepared and put together, even in the off mic conversation we already had, than so many like professional podcasters. So I'm 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 very intimidated. Oh well, don't don't be intimidated. I've literally just have a few questions prepared. So one of the reasons I wanted to have you on is because I'm homeschooled, as I've said before in the podcast, but I take classes at an online classical school. And so we read classics all the time, and I'm taking Latin and logic classes. And one of the reasons I found your podcast, The Young Heretic, so interesting was that it's unlike anything in culture now. That Like, you go to the Marvel movies and it's like, ah, blam, blam, pow, pow. <laughs> but there's not a lot of depth. There is some. It's like, oh, there's Tony Stark. He's dead now. Sorry, spoilers if no one knew that. Um, but there's not a lot of thinking involved. And yeah, have, have you found, like, is that why you started your podcast? Why did you kind of go this route? Well, let me say... First and foremost, that I am not anti-blam, blam, kapow, kapow. Um, I, mean, I, I do like the Marvel uh, movies. And I ju- actually just came out with an essay about them, um, about the multiverse and the Marvel Cinematic Universe and so forth. And so I think there's something to be gained from attention to all of this stuff. But I think you're absolutely right that we have what I would call a pretty shallow culture, a pretty shallow pop culture. And it's not that there shouldn't be sort of snackable pop art. I think, you know, that's a, a great gift for any culture to give its people. But I, I I just think that the problem is that there's kind of, that's the ceiling, you know, or it feels that way a lot of time. It's like the great, you know, artistic event of the summer is this sort of like roller coaster action movie. Um, and, and that's a real problem. You look at kind of great periods in history when the, um, you know, that, that we think of as kind of golden ages of art. So Elizabethan England, for instance, Athens in the high classical period, some of the stuff that I talk about on the podcast. And these are eras when like the pop art is already kind of elevated. And there is also just, you know, a, a, 
thriving and robust, you know, interest in the profound questions that lead to great art. Um, and so, yeah, that's one major reason why I started the show and why, you know, I'm always excited to meet homeschoolers <laughs> because, uh, no, truly, I mean, what's funny about uh, actually the conversations I have with people who homeschool or are homeschooled is they often begin with like, well, I'm not very smart or I'm not very interesting or like they make some sort of disclaimer. Uh, and then there follows like the most interesting conversation that I've had in a month, you know, like, and, and you know, so I, as we were talking about before, like I'm, I'm not, I wasn't homeschooled myself. Um, but I do sort of recommend that option very passionately to people when they ask me about, you know, how to, how to bring their kids up or where to go to school, just because these, kind of classical schools, homeschool uh, programs, homeschool collectives really are where our culture has kind of gone to preserve its treasures. And I mean, so many of those treasures are now either just openly mocked and rejected in a lot of schools or they're dismissed as kind of they're too boring, they're too hard, they're too difficult. And one of the things I always find with, with homeschool, you know, homeschoolers in general is like, if you give people, kids, even young kids credit for like five minutes, right? And actually invest attention and time in making this stuff real to them. It, it's actually a complete myth that it's somehow beyond the capacity of, I mean, obviously you have to be, read things that are appropriate for your level at each stage, but these classics are classics, not because they exist on some you know, fancy shelf somewhere and they have beautiful additions with, you know, nice binding, but because they are, as Matthew Arnold famously said, the best that has been thought and said about being human, which is the most urgent topic there is. And that's my main objection, actually, to the Kapow Kapow and the, and the Marvel stuff is like, it's not that, you know, I'm against pop culture. It's not that I'm against uh, superhero stuff. I love comics and all that it's that it seems to me as if there's a kind of escapism in a lot of the modern stuff that just isn't actually about what it means to be an adult human like questing to find meaning in the world or at least it, what they have to say on those subjects is kind of um not very satisfying yeah the other thing is now don't get me wrong i love the blam blam pow pow as much as any other person because it's just so entertaining sure. and the, some of the yeah. arcs are really good um, but the thing that I've found, so recently I actually read Plato's Republic for school, at this classical school, awesome. and I listened to part of your series on it, which you did. Now, when we when this releases, that might be a little bit ago that you did that series. But anyway, the thing sure. that I found fascinating is that you see Plato's, Aristotle's, Socrates, their idea throughout culture, and even in the Marvel universe, people like appeal to these things that they don't actually say out loud. But it's it's mm. this idea that, wait, wait just a second, I read about this. Didn't Aristotle say something similar? Or like Sophocles? And it's all this very interesting, there's almost this trickle-down effect from philosophers we don't often think about or I think are too high for ourselves that huh. everyone seems to reference, just not even on purpose. That's such an insightful point. And I'll tell a, like a funny, a brief <laughs> anecdote from yeah. my life, uh, which is that while I was prepping for sort of finishing up that series. So there's, I guess, 10 episodes now total out on each one on each book of, of the Republic. And I had my Alan Bloom translation of the book that I was carrying around with me. And I went to a Starbucks to 
get a um, <laughs> pumpkin cream cold brew for those that are out there wondering. And the guy behind the counter was like, oh, the Republic, like somebody assigned me that in, in high school. I was like, what did you think of it? He was like, uh, I didn't really read it. <laughs> Just like, and, and, and that, I mean, it was such a, it's such a shame because like, again, that's a, that's a classic effect of talking about these books. Like they're about things that nobody can understand or, uh, that, that aren't relevant to whatever. Like, yeah, you, once you see, I mean, for the Republic's a great example, Republic's a book about what is justice, right? That's the central question. Of the book. And it's like, that's a question which not only is everybody intimately concerned with it, whether they know it or not. I mean, C.S. Lewis points out in Mere Christianity, it's like if 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 you hear two people having a fight over like whose chair, who's, who gets to sit in a chair, they will immediately be appealing to concepts of justice without even thinking about it, as you said, right, just kind of naturally. And uh, you'll say things like, uh, I got here first, which is kind of like one mode of justice. Or you say things like, but the chair belongs to me. And that's another idea about justice. Um, and, and that's what this book is about. It's, it's incredibly sophisticated in the way that it deals with that question, but it also deals with it at an extremely human level. And it's crazy to me that this is something that like we consider kind of abstruse or irrelevant when like what's one of the biggest buzzwords of your lifetime and mine? Social justice, right? Like this kind of passionate uh, certainty that there is a there is a just thing and that we know what it is and we're moving toward it. Um, and one of the things that rarely comes up in those sorts of questions, is, is those sorts of conversations is like, well, what do you mean by social justice? What do you mean by justice, right? Um, is equity, for instance, just or is um, equality in the older American sense just? Um, and and these sorts of things, I think, you know, one of our like governing pathologies, if I can put it this way, is just flying blind in these rooms where like people have been we've been through this before. Right. There are resources for dealing with this. I have this book coming out called How to Save the West. And it's kind of about this. It's about the fact that we have all these little fights in, uh, it, you know, in the momentary news cycle and they keep coming back up and we keep kind of treading and tripping over the same issues. Um, and if you look at, if you sort of pull back the camera and you just take a, a couple great texts from antiquity or from the Western canon, they, they reveal themselves to be actually quite profound struggles. Like all this, you know, gender stuff and trans stuff is like, you know, this is about what it means to be in a body, right? What it means to be a, a soul, as Paul said, to have treasure in clay jars, to be, you know, made out of flesh and blood, but also have these higher aspirations. And it's like, I don't know, man, there's kind of a lot of great writing on that subject. And it's a shame that we're throwing it out the window at the same time as we are suddenly re-encountering all of these questions in, in the digital age. The fascinating thing is, is specifically about the transgender issue is that this is stuff that Plato and Aristotle argued about. It's like the forms appealing to the forms, or is it the physical aspect, or is it just a mix between the two? And with, right. I would believe that would be more of Aristotle's idea. And it was it's very interesting that these debates that we're having go back to what like we've discussed for hundreds and hundreds of years and actually thousands of years. So it's it's right. really interesting. The kind of the follow-up question I was like, so we've had this text for hundreds of years, as I just said. Why have we not fixed anything? Like why are, <laughs> why is this so relevant all the time? Well, I mean, I, I think like you can crack your Bible to answer that question in some ways. Like there, there, um, 
Augustine is really good on this. Like we make certain kinds of progress, but not others. Like every human soul creates the world anew. And so in that respect, you know, that that's kind of the, to me, one of the major meanings of the constant backsliding of Israel, right? This long, long history in the Old Testament of like, they turned after other gods and that didn't work out so well for them. And so then they were like, mm, maybe instead we can repent. And God's like, great, just don't turn after other gods. And the next thing they did was like, turn after other gods. And like this, and so, so this is a, you know, Whatever else you want to say about it, this is a recurring feature of of humanity. It, it it is one of the reasons why traditions are so important. Like not so that you can wag your finger at people or scold them for being decadent or whatever, but just because like a, a, a newborn soul comes into the world and has to take ownership of these truths for him or herself. Um, and if you leave that person without any of the kind of signposts, then it's likely they're going to get some of these questions wrong. I mean, the other thing is that as um, one of my favorite scholars is a guy called Owen Barfield, and he's fond of pointing this out a lot that, you know, th these things, eternal truths are eternal, but we are not eternal, right? We are impermanent. And this is also a classic platonic observation that socrates kind of picks up from parmenides is like we live in the world of what the greeks would have called togenomenon that which is always coming into being and passing away and so we do and this is something that people like me who are kind of more politically conservative have to remind themselves a lot like i have to remind myself of this we we do um get kind of idolatrously attached to what what it looks like in certain eras to follow these eternal truths and the the sad tragic reality of living in a living in time and living in a broken world is that we actually have to always be resurrecting those truths in new ways to meet new challenges i mean this is in some ways it's the science of of prudence right um but the idea you know uh, for instance that we're having this conversation over zoom uh, making a podcast, you know, suddenly it begins to occur to me that like many of these technologies didn't exist, like even when I was born. And and so, hmm, like maybe there are some, maybe there's a reason why these very fundamental questions are coming up again beyond just our own sort of depravity and forgetfulness of which, to be clear, there is plenty. But like beyond that, right, maybe it's the case that we're, we're living through a kind of sea change, um, which is dredging up matters that in a quieter age might have seemed settled. And that's uh, uh, something that I think we still have only begun to grapple with is like you, you alluded to the Aristotelian position called hylomorphism, that our bodies are, are form in matter, that we have you know, souls, but they're not ghosts in the machine that they're kind of encoded. Into. I am like a thoroughgoing hylomorphist. Like if I could, I would walk around with a picket <laughs> sign that says like form and matter are intertwined. But like, you know, this is the thing that becomes, you have to recover that truth when you can project your presence into this kind of amorphous, ill understood digital space. Like, these are challenges that we're going to, you know, you and and I and, you know, you more than I as like, you know, I am now a decrepit like 30 year old, <laughs> but like you're a high schooler and like, you know, you are a digital native, I assume. And, and so like we're really going to have to work these things out for ourselves in a, in a new way. There are so many areas where Platonic philosophy and Aristotelian philosophy kind of intersect, like with the metaverse now. Um, mm. But something that I want to get back to that you mentioned real briefly, 
So I'm a Christian. I don't know if I've actually ever said that on air before, but there you go. There you go, world. <laughs> All right. Um, Congratulations. <laughs> thanks. Come out. There we go. Um, <laughs> yep. So and the thing that always kind of annoys me is I look around at Christian culture and you have these people who are like, Burn the burn the the peasants or whatever. Burn all the pe- <laughs> not the peasants. That's not the term. Burn all the other the people. heretics. The, the pagans. Yes, there we yes. go. The pagans, not the pre- peasants. That's a very different word. And there we go. <laughs> <laughs> I like the idea of a peasant burning church. Actually, that's, that's sort of. I'm sure you could find an example of that I'm somewhere sure. in history. But. So burn the pagans. Yes, pagans and heretics. Burn yeah, the yeah. heretics. Mm-hmm. And then you have the people like, no, we just need to love everyone for what they say. But it's like, wait, these are two very extremes. I feel like we need to like think about where they could all kind of fall together and it's like there's mm-hmm. this o- overwhelming culture of christianity where it seems to be very surface level it's like okay it's either love or burn and it's like <laughs> so is there a way to get more depth because I, when you are in a classical school you often study saint augustine um athanasius and many of the other philosophers who are also christians and you're like wow this is very deep stuff i wish there were more people like this in the christian world now so is there a way to insert depth or is it just I'm a cynic now and I, I'm not looking in the right spot? <laughs> no, man, you are touching on something so urgent and you've identified, I think, a real problem in uh, American Christianity 2022. You know, that's not I mean, it's 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 older than than the millennium, than, than the 2000s. But it, it you, you you put it very well, you know, that this this idea that your two options in the church are to hang a rainbow flag outside your window and just like, you know, equate Christianity with BLM, right? To just fully, you know, this this fully kind of love means embracing everybody all the time for everything and uh, also adhering to this list of like political issues. Um, and then, you know, one thing I think that also can be very unattractive, especially for, for seekers, is, is the idea that, how to put it, that Christianity is identical to a, like 1950s American morality um, and, and that like not only – I want to be careful here because there is a morality that is is you know necessarily tied to Christian teaching, um, and churches should teach to to offer moral teaching. Um, but at the same time, right, that um, there's a certain sense in a lot of church conversations that I attend uh, that let's say you have an hour Bible study. The the feeling is that like, if we don't wrap up this one hour conversation on the nature of sin with a conclusion that the church is exactly right. And like, you know, everything is like good and fine because Jesus, right. Um, then we will have failed. And so there's a real, therefore, um, I would describe it as a kind of fear of like raising, entertaining, uh, incredibly painful and difficult ideas of the sort that an Athanasius can really, uh, plumb in, in a profound way. Athanasius, you know, not a slouch when it comes to doctrine, right? Not, it's not somebody that holds his theological points lightly. And yet you have a, a, a sense with him that he's really seriously asking the question, right? You know, what does it mean for God to be made flesh? And I think that, um, we are afraid of that in the more conservative Christian church a lot of the time. Um, and it, it 
it comes from, again, this is a very old thing, you know, what hath Athens to do with Jerusalem? Like this is a from Tertullian, you know, back in the early, early church, like this sense that the Bible contains all truth. We don't need anything else. It's, it explains itself, it interprets itself. There's like n- nothing of any use in culture outside of the church. Um, an admirable passion, but to me, demonstrably false, right? And 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 therefore, like weakening to the church's position to go to go out here claiming that, right? It it, it weakens us to make what is a kind of visibly untrue claim, viz that like there is, you know, not only do Western moral values spring from Judeo-Christian sources, but there is no morality outside of, you know, like there are no moral people outside of the church, or there are no people who can find peace and death outside of the church, or the, you, know, you hear people say things of this of this nature. Um, and and my feeling is, you know, <laughs> you can, um, one of the things that surprised me most the first time I read the Bible was how, what an enormous and, and human and realist book it was. Um, and and you can be a realist and a Christian. In fact, one of the main selling points of Christianity is that it is, the to me, the most realist view of the world. It is the one that takes the, the, the frankest account of how ugly people can be, of uh, the mysteries and powers beyond us that we do not understand. Um, and And all of the supposedly realist kind of modern secular attitudes that are touted as more kind of uh, wise and, and um, you know, less, less naive than religion, um, all of them seem to me less realists. They describe the world less truly than, than the Bible does. But what that means is that whatsoever things are true, lovely, and of good report, right, as, as Paul says, whatsoever things um, must in some way be a part of this truth that is contained for us wholly in the gospel. Like I believe that the gospel and the crucifixion and the resurrection give you the entirety of the truth about man's relationship to God. But if that's the case, then like things that are manifestly true, like some of these Aristotelian observations um, that we were talking about, can't just be like part of the error, the darkened error of of humanity. Like, and this was, this is why Thomas Aquinas is the great Christian philosopher is because he basically sees like, no, you can, you can baptize Aristotle and actually Christ consummates Aristotle. Like there are these kind of ways in which these, uh, people outside the church kind of point toward the church. I mean, there's a beautiful vision in the prophecy of Isaiah, all the peoples of the earth, right? Bringing their different produce from far to Zion at the last day. And it's like this picture is kind of, to me, a perfect idea of what it means to go forth and, and baptize, all na- baptize all nations of, of the check that is written, the blank check that is written on the road to Emmaus, where like all the scripture was about this guy. You know, if you're going out into the world and you're encountering, you know, what what you might call general revelation or uh, indiscriminate grace, right? I mean, these things do exist. And in order to deny that they exist, you kind of have to deny the evidence of, of your eyes. And so I think uh, one major thing that is holding American conservative Christians back from this is fear, right? We are um, afraid because we are embattled and beleaguered, right? We, we feel like 
in the world, every everyone is constantly making fun of us and belittling us or chasing, you know, chasing us out of business and so on and so forth. And my feeling about that is yes. And did Jesus tell you anything else would happen? Like, is that, <laughs> this, this is why it's a realist book, right? Is like, that's exactly the position that the church was always told it was going to be in. Um, and still, right, like, we cannot have any fear in the truth. Perfect love casts out all fear because, you know, perfect love and perfect truth are ultimately at, at are ultimately one. And so the, this is like, you know, uh, anyway, I've, I've gone on a bit. I've ranted a little bit because you've raised a subject that's very near to my heart in, in a way that I think is you're really onto something. No, I think it's perfectly fine to rant about this because this could be its own like <laughs> five hour Joe Rogan podcast just about yes. this one question. So yes. before we wrap up here with our last two questions, I wanted to ask almost a question that – so the one of the, our main questions we ask people is what books have had an impact on them. But before mm. I ask, like, the book that has had an impact mm. on you, I kind of want – do you have a book list that kind of is like, okay, you read this and then you are an educated person. You have the stamp <laughs> of approval. <laughs> yeah, you know, people uh, – this is one of the questions that I, I got – most often when I was starting the podcast and I used to hate it and I now actually really enjoy it. I, I, <laughs> I, um, I used to hate it because it's like, there's too few. There's not, not, not space. It's like, and I do, I am a big advocate of like, you, you don't want to think about reading as like, once I've made it through a certain gauntlet, then I will be kind of like, I'll have, I'll have read, like I'll have done reading. Um, you, <laughs> right. Like, like reading, and more than that, the communion of minds that comes, you know, that comes into being when when you read deeply um, is a way of life. And really what I'm out here trying to preach to people is to like ways that that way of life can enrich their lives, you know, like and and and, and so that is like, you know, I, I would say it's almost more important to say to yourself, like, I'm going to spend half an hour a day uh, reading something, you know, like with no distractions. Um, and I'm also not going to like, you know, beat myself up if I don't get through a lot of pages because I'm reading a very dense book, you know, but that's just, I'm, I'm just dodging the question. Here we go. Five books. Um, the, the Bible, the old Testament and new Testament. And that's actually not restricted to just because you and I are here, you know, are Christians and are talking about Christianity. Like that's, that's not why I'm saying that I'm saying it because, you cannot be an educated person without uh, having read the whole Bible. You don't know where your own language comes from, where your own figures of speech come from. I mean, think about, like you say, the apple of my eye, you say all these things. So like, ideally, the King James Bible, um, if if that's, you know, if you're at a place where your reading level isn't like yet makes that like almost impossible then like the new revised standard version and the oxford edition these are these are you know good options um but that's you know it's it's at least one of if not the most capacious and honest uh portrayals of the human condition that we have um now i used to say homer's iliad because this is my favorite epic and it's the kind of origin of of pagan literature of, or of greek literature at least you know um now I say Virgil's Aeneid because if like you're only going to read one epic, then you ought to read the one that kind of like gathers all of them into one. And Virgil's Aeneid kind of, kind of does this. Um, and it's also phenomenal and a rip-roaring good tale. Um, 
And then I, ch- I would like to cheat uh, and say the complete works of Shakespeare, because you can get it bound in one volume. So that's like the other thing you got to do. Another place where you don't know where your language comes from, unless you've read the complete works of Shakespeare. Um, and, and if you don't know where your language comes from, then you don't know where your modes of thought come from. You have, you have in, in, sort of like we're talking about earlier, you have instinctive, reflexive modes of thought. Um, and then the one that gives me the most trouble is the American one, because it's like everybody's got their own favorite American author and some people are Faulkner people and some people are Hemingway people. And I, I give, I tell people to go away and read um, the great Gatsby because it's the greatest, I, in, in my opinion, it's, it's one of the best, it's one of the greatest works of um, literary composition in American. Like, I think you can make a case for, for Faulkner as the great American writer, but read the great Gatsby um, and then read Machiavelli's Prince. Uh, because Machiavelli sort of slept on, or at least in some sense, uh, reviled, right. In a lot of ways for being this ruthless, whatever he's not that he's not anything like the, the qualities that he gets his name from, although he has a streak of sort of what you would now call realpolitik. Um, but what he really is, is the, the first great, um, thinker of the new world. And, and it's funny because he was not, you know, an explorer and he didn't go colonize the, uh, the Americas or anything. And yet he makes a comparison between his own work and the discovery of the new world, um, which I think is, is characteristically exact and, and apt. He is t- writing for a, a world in which the globe will soon be interconnected for a world in which like the, the forms of politics that are available have changed from the ancient world. Um, and, and he basically describes, especially he's really good actually on elite capture, which is one of the things we're currently up against. Like what happens when the nobles of a city or a principate become, uh, too big for their britches. And, and so, yeah, those are the five. So wrapping up, what, is the book that's had impact on you. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, the, in high school, it was the Bible. It, it was, um, and it was for the reason that I said, which was, I read it almost as a kind of literary project. Um, it ended up converting, I was not raised Christian. It ended up converting me to Christianity. But um, it, one of the reasons why it did that is because it was so unlike uh, what I had learned to think of it as, um, which was a kind of, I don't know, um, list of rules, basically. <laughs> like I had learned to think of it as a list of rules that people use to um, establish their own moral authority. And in fact, it's much more sprawling and strange and mysterious than that um, and and much fuller of the rich, the full richness of human life. Um, in grad school, there was a book called Poetic Diction. This is good timing because I just finished some episodes on this on Young Heretics and um, Poetic Diction is a book by Owen Barfield, ostensibly about etymology, uh, but actually about much more than that, about how we use language, how we think, how we perceive the world. Um, Barfield was one of the few people who understood what uh, quantum physics meant for the future of of humanity. Uh, we, many of us still don't understand, still talk as if uh, this this uh, these discoveries haven't been made. And uh, Barfield in Poetic Diction and also in a later book, Saving the Appearances, uh, really radically altered the way that I see the world. So our last question is, what advice do you have for teenagers? Okay. I'm going to offer some advice, which I hope will not be too depressing. Um, and that is, uh, you do not have infinite time. Um, I remember in high school and into college, and maybe this has changed, although I, I so, sort of doubt it. I expect it's kind of gotten worse. I, I remember a, it was almost a piece of conventional wisdom, like a going 
rhetorical gesture, uh, which was like, you have all the time in the world and, you know, you should try out like five different things. And if none of them takes, then like, you know, down the road, you'll do something else. And, and to be clear, you do have, you, you should try different things. Um, you do have the luxury of time to that extent. And, um, you're certainly your mistakes are not irrevocable. I mean, you, that, that's a, an error that I made in, in youth was thinking like, oh, I've, I've messed up my chance of doing X or Y forever. Um, so don't worry about that, but you are making and will continue to make choices, uh, that will very quickly start to limit the choices that you have in the future. It actually matters just as like, if you wanted to be a ballerina, you would have to train from the age of, I don't know, three or something, or else never be physically structured in a way to be a professional ballerina. Um, as Aristotle, our old pal says in the Nicobian ethics, right? Character formation, habit formation. Um, this stuff is, is crucial and it is best done when young. Um, and so I would suggest that the most countercultural, countercultural thing that a high school student can do is to get serious about his or her plans for the future. It's not that you can't change and revise, you will change and revise very profoundly, but it is that you should um, be definite about, look, if you want to be a journalist, you know, you should be off like reading the great essays of the great American journalist, you should be making plans for how you're going to, you know, pursue that. Um, because again, like, the, the sad truth is that your options narrow with each choice that you make. And that's a beautiful thing because you can dig deeply into, you know, your, your chosen field. Um, but you don't want to end up looking back on your 20s and thinking, man, like I took up five different things, none of which I'm now doing. And uh, all of them I kind of took up lightly because I thought I had infinite time. Like that, that that's to, to me, that is a really um, damaging thing that we kind of convey to people in in high school, you do not have infinite time. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Cleveland, for coming on the podcast. I really enjoyed our discussion about classics, why you should read classics, Christianity and classics, and then the books that you should read to be educated, plus all the other ones that you should read as well. <laughs> so <laughs> it's been such a pleasure. Yeah, thanks for coming thank on. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you so much for listening to this episode. Hopefully all of you guys enjoyed it. If you liked it, please rate and subscribe to the podcast and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at aimingthenumber4moon. If you go to our website, aimingforthemoon.com, you can find links to our merch, the Lessons from Interesting People newsletter, and other episodes and bios of our guests. Yeah, if you want to see any of my other meanderings, go to taylorgledso.com. And with that... Again, thanks so much for listening. Don't forget to set your sights high and aim for the moon.